Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Kirk Church Podcast. I'm Aaron Elmore, lead pastor at Kirk of the Hills, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is where you can hear messages from all our pastors and guest speakers. Make sure to subscribe and share with anyone who follows the Kirk. If you want to know more about us, visit us at thekirk.com, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram at the Kirk Church. Let's get started with today's episode. Well, good morning. As Colin said, my name is Kaylee, and I am the operations director here. And I was corrected earlier. I thought I'd been here eight months. I've now been here nine months. So it feels like two years, but in the best way possible. I love being here. The staff is amazing. You all are great. So it's really fun to be able to come this morning and um, give a message. And I just wanted to um, start out by saying that for those of you who uh, don't know me, one little thing that you should know about me is that I absolutely love the Enneagram. And at its basic level, the Enneagram is a personality test. It is way more than that, way more. And if you had four hours and some coffee, I'd sit down and I'd tell you all about it. But it is a personality test. And when you take the test, you get a result from, with a number from one to nine. When I take the test, I get an eight. And for, haha, if for any of you who know the Enneagram, you're maybe cringing right now because eights have a stereotype of, of being intense. We are called the challengers or the protectors. And so we like to ask questions. We like to push buttons. We like to, um, challenge your thoughts and your paradigms and all of those things. And we don't do it just because we like to argue or we like to push buttons. That's not why, even though everybody thinks that's why. Because in reality, I actually hate arguing. I hate conflict. I would rather run from it if I could. But I love my people. I love my tribe. I love the things, the causes that I, that I find passionate for, passion for. And so those things are the things that I'm going to push on. And it's because I'm protecting my people and protecting my causes. But one thing I do like that is similar to arguing is debates or a legal argument. It's one of the reasons why I love watching legal shows. And debates are really, really fun because it's kind of a battle of wits, right? You get two people who know a lot about a subject and they just go at it. And for some of you, if you like boxing, it's probably like that, except thankfully not as violent. But you go at it and then at the very end, there's someone who says something. And they say something so profound or so correct or so whatever that the other person has to stop dead in their tracks. That is that proverbial mic drop moment. And I love it. That's what I'm waiting for. I'm always at the edge of my seat just waiting for that moment. And we're going to see here in a little bit that the Israelites tried to have that proverbial mic drop moment. They were foolish when they tried to do that. Because in the end, after only a mat around maybe even half around. God was the one who ended up dropping a mic on them. But before I get there, I want to give you some background on the book that we're going to talk about today. As you know, we're in the series on the minor prophets. There are 12 of them. Micah is the sixth book in that series of 12. And it takes place around 735 BC, which you can see from our handy timeline we keep putting up every week. And it also takes place around the same time that Hosea was prophesying. And also another well-known prophet was Isaiah. It takes place during the same time of him as well. Something that was interesting is that Micah got to speak to both kingdoms of Israel. 
the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Why that's interesting to me, at least, is because no other prophet did that. They all stayed kind of in their, in their own areas, but Micah prophesied to both. We know that he is from a small town named Morasheth. Morasheth was probably um, just southwest of Jerusalem. And that's important because most people, when they are brought up in the Bible, they are brought up by their lineage, who their dads were, their grandfathers were, that sort of thing. But we're told where Micah is from. And so what that means is he probably wasn't from the elite class. He probably was a commoner. So he was probably from, like we know, this village. And so he was speaking about things that the villagers, the farmers, that they were dealing with and they were struggling with. And at the time, they were struggling with a lot of people who were elite, who were corrupt. They were struggling with being taken advantage of by those people who were in the upper class. They were greedy. They were wanting power. They were wanting wealth. And all of this was running rampant in both kingdoms. The other thing that was happening was they were generally, the, the Israelites were generally in an apostate condition. And what that means is that they were rebelling against God. They had turned away from him. They were choosing not to follow him, choosing not to follow his laws and his commandments. Because of this, because of their rebellion and their behavior and what they were doing, God is pretty angry. And Micah is pretty angry. And so he tells them about it. And he does not hold anything back. And through Micah, God is showing them accusations and warnings of what is to come if they continue to behave in this way. And so I want to take a look at some of these passages so that we can understand this case that is being brought against them that Colin shared when he read the scripture earlier. So the first passage is Micah 2, 1 through 2. And here we see that he's calling out those who are scheming and those who are taking property that doesn't belong to them. And this is what it says. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light, they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them. They defraud people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance. In Micah 3.11, Micah also calls out the corruption and greed that is taking place when people are asking for money and charging for things that they really shouldn't be doing that. He says, her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. And again, in Micah 6, 11 through 12, God points out more of the greed and more of the corruption when he says, shall I acquit someone with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights? Your rich people are violent, your inhabitants are liars, and their tongues speak deceitfully. Because of their behavior, God is really angry with them, and he tells them this, and he tells them that he is going to bring condemnation and wrath to them and will destroy them. Specifically in Micah and the scriptures, we see that he prophesies about the fall of Samaria and the fall of Jerusalem, which is both the north and the south. Thankfully, though, it's not all bleak in Micah. He does bring us some hope in the midst of all of God's accusations and his warnings of his wrath. He shows that God also is a merciful God, and he gives people hope if they choose to turn back to him. So I want to take some time and look at those verses, too. We're going to start with Micah 2, 12 through 13. This is where God reminds them of the covenant that he made with Abraham, that he will be bringing them all back together, and they will be protected as a king protects their people. God says, I will surely gather all of you, Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. 
I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. The one who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. And then in Micah 4, 2 and verse 8, we see that God's people will actually do the U-turn that this series is titled for. They're going to repent. They come back to faith and they will walk again in God's ways. And this is what that says. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. As for you, watchtower of the flock, stronghold of daughter Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to daughter Jerusalem. Not only does Micah give hope for the remnant and their faith being restored, but also in Micah 5.2, he prophesies about where the coming Messiah will actually come from. And what's cool here is that he, this is the only place in the Old Testament where we actually get a prophecy of Jesus' birthplace. And it says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. And then the last word of hope and the display of God's mercy that comes in this book comes in Micah 7, 18 through 20. And it's when Micah says, Who is a God like you? who pardons sin and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged an oath to our ancestors in the days long ago. But before Micah gave that last bit of hope, the Israelites questioned what they were supposed to do in order to avoid God's wrath. Because remember, at the beginning of chapter 6, God was talking about the case that he was bringing against them. All of these accusations throughout the book that he was bringing against them. And so the Israelites are sitting there saying, but what exactly are we supposed to do? What do you want us to do? And so we see in Micah 6, 6 through 7, that this is what they say. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with 10,000 of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? This is that mic drop moment that I was talking about earlier. This is where they tried to go toe-to-toe with God. They were being really arrogant right here, actually, and really snotty. They knew they were doing everything right. And they thought that they could catch catch God in their right actions to prove that he should be helping them, not accusing them, and not saying that he is going to bring destruction and wrath upon them. They pointed out their burnt offerings, their sacrifices, and then sarcastically they went even further and said that they would give their firstborns as an offering, all to make the point that they were in the right and God was not. But God Being the almighty God that he is, gave a response that was the real mic drop moment and definitely not what they were expecting. Instead of trading wits with them and giving them an answer about more things that they had to do, more things to tick off of their proverbial religious checklists, he took it deeper. He argued that the problem is not with what they are doing, 
but who they are and how they behave. The problem is with their character. And not only that, but that for these people who thought so highly of their knowledge of what the right things were to do, Micah points out that they should have known what God wanted them to do. And here in Micah 6, 8 is what he says. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Let's read that one more time. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. At first glance, this may look like just another list of three things to do. However, it's actually a very brief summary of the law and what covenant life back then was supposed to look like. A similar situation you may recall happened to Jesus in Matthew when the Pharisees were also trying to trick him and asked him what the greatest commandment is. And Jesus said, love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. That too was a summary, summary of the commandments. But when we humans go to God thinking it's all about the things that we do and how we do it, and we try to put him in a black and white confine, he always brings it back to our character and our motives for why we're doing the things he asks us to do. You see, he wants us to be like him because we were made in his image. In the instance with Jesus and the Pharisees, it was all about love, which is the key character trait of God. And here in Micah 6, 8, God is showing us a few other character traits that he wants us to portray and emulate. He's wanting us to act justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly. So I figured let's take a look at these three things just so that we can understand them a little bit more. The first character trait that God requires of us is to act justly. The dictionary's definition of justly is to behave according to what is morally right or fair. In this context, to act justly is to behave honorably and according to the law that God gave his people, not what the world gave them or what they thought they were supposed to do. And the Israelites know what the law tells them. They know that they're supposed to love God with all their heart. They know that they're supposed to take care of the poor and the widowed, that they're supposed to obey God, be loyal to him, trust him, fear him, serve him. But they weren't doing that. They weren't obeying him. They definitely weren't trusting him. Instead of acting justly and honorably, they were taking advantage of the poor. They were taking advantage of the marginalized, the widows, and they were doing all of this to gain power and to gain wealth. They were cheating people out of money, their homes, their houses. And then, so they could say that they were doing the right thing, so they could make themselves feel just a little bit better, they picked and chose which things that they were going to do. They gave the burnt offerings. They did the sacrifices so they could check it off their list. As the Israelites should have done, we as followers of God are to set an example for others. We are to show what living justly and honorably looks like, and not just once, because it's living. So it's as we go, we have to do this day in and day out. It kind of reminds me of my favorite passage in the Bible, which is called the Golden Rule. It's in Luke 6.31, and it's do unto others as you'd have done unto you. In the Israelites' case, an example would have been to financially help those who needed it instead of cheating them out of their money, charging them for things that they shouldn't have been charging them for, and taking their homes and their land. For me, it made me think of a job that I had a number of years ago where one of the supervisors, he wasn't the best manager, 
his behaviors, his attitudes, his decisions, just his way he was would cause people to become very, very frustrated. It was hard for them to do their jobs. And so over time, there were a number of people who ended up quitting. The thing is, though, is they didn't do it very well. A number of them quit without giving notice or maybe a day or two. Those who did give notice of maybe around two weeks checked out, right? They didn't really do anything. They just came into work grumpy and would say bad things about this person or potentially about the organization as well. And the world probably would have said that they were justified to behave that way because he wasn't the greatest manager and he was not treating them nicely. And so the world probably would have said, go for it, exactly, that's what you should do. But that's not what Jesus would have wanted. So when I decided it was time for me to quit, I prayed about it, I went and asked a number of my close Christian friends for counsel and decided that I was going to leave well and I was going to leave honorably. And so I did. It wasn't easy at all, but I was determined. And a week or two before I, my last day, that supervisor actually pulled me aside and he thanked me. He told me how impressed he was that I was able to actually not only get my work done, but continue to encourage other people to get their jobs done. He said he was impressed by the company loyalty that I had and that I continued to speak highly of him and the rest of the staff and his organization. It felt really good, not only to know that I was able to leave well, but most importantly, that I could be a good representation of Jesus to this man. Doing the right and honorable thing may look like that. You may have a similar story, but it also may look differently for you. And whatever your situation may be, the bottom line is that God wants us to be the people who shows the world what truly acting justly looks like. Maybe like the Israelites, there is an area of our lives where we need to make a U-turn and we need to begin living in a just way instead of a worldly way. And that's the first question for you today. Where is there a U-turn in your life where you need to start acting justly? The second character trait that God wants of us is to love mercy. Other versions actually translate this to love faithfully. And to love faithfully is a closer translation of the Hebrew word here, which is hesed. It means a faithful covenant love or a loyal love that contains mercy. Throughout history, God has consistently shown us his faithful love toward his people through his mercy and kindness and forgiveness, especially when we didn't deserve it. He could have easily condemned us for everything that we had done, and he would have been right in doing so. But he didn't. He forgave us. And it's most notably shown when Jesus went to the cross and died for our sins. If this is what God is requiring of us, then we can't just talk about it or wish someone else would show it or buy a really cool poster and put it on our walls. We have to be the ones to be merciful and to show faithful love. But this kind of love is not the easy, frilly, pretty kind of love when things are all going right. This is the hard kind of love. This is the nitty gritty, dirty kind of love. I had a roommate once years ago, and when I first met her, she was really kind. She was a Christian. Uh, we got along really well. She was easy to talk to. We'd go and have coffees, and we'd have a good time. And so I thought, oh, she could be someone that I could move in together with. So we did. We moved in together and signed a lease. And a couple months into it, though, things started changing. She became very, very distant, very melancholy. She isolated herself. And she started lying. 
She started lying about things that she was doing, things that she was saying. She started lying about me, who I was, my character. And without going into too much detail, it got much, much worse over the following few months. I realized that she had had some mental health issues that she was taking care of, but only through drugs and alcohol. She was self-medicating. It got so bad that we ended up having to part ways and I had to move out. And during that time, I could have gotten really, really angry with her. I could have lashed out in a number of different ways. And according to the world, I would have been justified, right? She was treating me poorly. Why can't I treat her poorly? But I was reminded that that's not what Jesus wants of us. Instead, he expects us to love others and to show them mercy. Even when, maybe especially when, we don't want to and when they don't deserve it. So instead, I chose to pray for her. And when I was praying for her, I let her know it. I would send her text messages or write her notes. I chose to help her in many other ways. I put food out for her. I would check in on her. And was I angry through that time? Absolutely. That was not the living situation that I was looking forward to. I was really frustrated. I was really confused. But I chose, through the help of Holy Spirit, to continue to show her mercy and kindness, just like God has shown us. This is what God is asking of us here. He wants us to be kind and forgiving and merciful towards others, even when they have wronged us. Or maybe they haven't necessarily wronged us, but they are doing something that we perceive as wrong. So the second question I want to ask you all, is there a way that you need to make a U-turn here in your life? Is there a way that you can love others faithfully and with mercy? The third character trait that God requires of us is to walk humbly with him. Others translate this as walking wisely with God. Another way to word this is to carefully live an obedient life of God's will. When we live this way, we are looking to him for guidance rather than pridefully doing our own thing. Another way to phrase this is to abide in him. In John 15, verses 4 through 5, Jesus describes it this way. Abide in me as I also abide in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must abide in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. To do this, to be able to abide with God and to walk in his plan, we need to know what his plan is. And so we have to be in a relationship with him. And the two biggest ways to be in a relationship with him is through prayer and through scripture. But we have to make sure that when we read scripture, it's not just the checklist. We're not just reading it to read it, get done with that for our day. We need to really study it. We need to understand the context that it was written in and who the people it was written to so that we understand what the meaning was then so that we can then understand what the meaning is for us now in this context and in this time. And when we pray, we can't just treat God like a vending machine or like a genie that he's going to grant us his wishes. We have to remember that we're in a relationship with him, which means it's a two-way conversation. We have to remember to listen and to watch for God's response. We don't want to be like the Israelites who tried to outplay and outwit God by doing the bare minimum and checking off the proverbial Christian tasks. It just doesn't work. God created us in his image. He wants us to act like it and reflect his character traits. And in order to know what that looks like, we have to abide in him through the prayer and reading scripture. 
Personally, there have been times in my life when I've had struggle with this. I thought I was praying a lot. And then I was scrolling through Instagram one day and I saw a little picture that said, are you praying about it as much as you're thinking about it? And that stopped me dead in my tracks. Because I thought, oh man, I keep telling people, I'm thinking of you, I'm praying about you. And I realized I wasn't, I was thinking about them a lot, but I wasn't actually giving it to God. I wasn't actually intentionally going to him in prayer and praying about those things, whether it was for someone else or myself. And so that was something that I had to do a U-turn on and I had to figure out that I needed to carve out time in my day. Or if I told someone that I was praying for them, I stop right then and there and I pray. Or I send them a text and let them know what the prayer is. Now, don't get me wrong. I know that all of this is really, really hard because sin is in this world and we have sinful natures. We don't always want to walk in the character that God wants of us. Paul, like many times, said it best when he said that he does what he knows he shouldn't and doesn't do what he knows he should. I gave some examples above when I've done it well, but trust me, I've failed a lot along the way as well. But the key is is that I keep trying and I keep getting better. And that's what I hope for all of you as well. When we continue to do our best to walk humbly with God and to live the obedient life of God's design, then we will in turn know what it is to love mercifully and faithfully, to act in a just manner as he requires of us, and then we will be the people he wants us to be and knows that we can be. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for giving us your word so that we can be encouraged and challenged so we can be given space to grow and make our own choices, but also so we can be given a clear direction of how to live our lives within your will and for your glory. We thank you that you have chosen us and that your love is unconditional. And Lord, we also pray that you will help us to abide in you, to see what it means for each of us to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with you within our lives because we want to be a good witness to this world. Thank you for showing us the way and equipping us. We love you and appreciate all you do. We appreciate all you are. And it is in your name we pray. Amen.